Welcome back to The Consequences Podcast with Paul McNulty and Sean McCreevy. Folks, welcome back to the podcast once again. We've got a really interesting guest with us here today, somebody who worked at Strawberry uh, in the late 70s and early 80s and was witness to some very interesting sessions. So would you please welcome to the podcast, Mark Coburn. Hi, Mark. Hello, Mark. Hi, chaps. Really, really good to have you on board today. Welcome. Um, Yeah, Mark, it was great. You you got in contact uh, via Facebook a little while ago and... um, specifically uh, about the track uh, Survivor. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk that about that in a minute. And um, we're very interested to hear about your experience at working at Strawberry North, um, as we said, around the, the, the late 70s and early 80s. Um, but, um, and you've already explained this a little to me privately offline, but would you mind telling us how you got to work at Strawberry? Because that's quite interesting. Mm. Yeah, it's um, what used to happen then was that obviously there were no colleges and universities offering music production, etc. That there are now nowadays. So um, it had to be hands-on experience, and really, um, you, you got in via your own music path. However, that came about, and I was playing guitar with a band and I was doing stuff and I, I happened one night to meet Martin Lawrence and we um, we clicked very quickly when he told me what what he did and um, we we formed a kind of a, 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 a friendship that mm-hmm. um, that that was it gravitated around music production multi-track recording etc and mm-hmm. um I think in those days, I think the, the 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 way in was to have a keenness to to learn and to be slightly musical because you obviously you had to know your, your, your some of your dots and bars for for you, you always started in studios then analog studios as a tape hop mm. and yes. you needed to know your cues for dropping in and you need to know your musical um, the. the Bars and the sections and the chorus, verse, middle eight, etc., etc. Yes, right. So, yeah. uh, and it's a bit, a bit more than being able to count to four, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. It can be very challenging it, yeah. when, when you, when you get in at the deep end. <laughs> Now we have the amazing talents of Mr. Rick Fan and his amazing Geffen guitar. So, so, so Martin actually headhunted you, I believe. Is that is that right? He sort sort of said uh, he he, get, he offered you a place as a tape op at Strawberry. Yeah, he, he did. Although it's a, it, it, I don't, I wouldn't use the expression. Headhunted because that's usually <laughs> that's usually regarding people who were already highly skilled. <laughs> well, I was at the other end of that. So you were a but, complete, um, you were a complete novice then, Mark. Is that what you're saying in terms of the the way the studio worked? Yeah, I, I was. Yeah, wow. I, I was. Um, me, 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 musical path up to then was um, 
it it was it was all at the high production end. So um, I had a lot of keenness, and I, I gravitated in my teams through Todd Drundren and people mm. who were. Oh, okay, okay. So, so you mean you, yes, you were aware of the concept of, of of you know overdubbing, multi-track recording, and everything. But like the the rest of us, if you like, there was no vehicle to actually do that for yourself. I suppose. Yeah, there, there, there was a, there was a, only one place. To do. I was likened it to, to working on the oil rigs, and there was there's, hmm. there's only one place to learn the trade, and that's right in there on it. Yeah, <laughs> right, um, right, right. Okay. So, so how did it work? Can you remember? I, I guess you can, because it must have been quite momentous when you came into the studio and the first things you did or the first session you worked on. Can you tell us what happened? Yeah, the, the first thing that happened actually was was uh, earlier in nineteen, maybe nineteen seventy eight, nineteen seventy seven, where uh-huh. uh, Martin used to get me to put the odd guitar track down on things, hmm. and these were big production things. These these were like experimental things that they were doing within the studio. Okay, um, nice. Um, I, I I was. I was um, I was becoming familiar with it how it worked even then. So the first day was um, was working on an album that Martin had already started on, which was it was actually the album that you sent me the, the photograph of the, the tape box with my name on from Strawberry. Hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, it was for Scott and Batiche. Hmm. Which was uh, an album. There were two local guys, Alistair Gordon, who went on to do other big things in yeah. his own right. Yeah. Um, and but the first session was uh, for Scott and Batiche, and of course you have to learn the the operating of the tape machines and the countings, the dropping in, the dropping out, and etc. And you you learn to clean the tape heads, you learn to spool up the tape, and etc. etc. Um, and it's strange. It's it, it's those things you don't really expect to be doing when you first start, but um, you, you go quite quickly into it. I must say. Oh, wonderful! <laughs> and, and was this a session that was being led by Martin, uh, or was was Pete Tattersall uh, around? Was he involved? No, Peter wasn't. Martin was producing it. And it was it was it had come through Rick Dixon, and ah. it, Rick Dixon was overseeing it like it's you know things things like in a sort of a executive capacity, mm. um, and yeah. uh, never, was never actually there. But um, yeah, so but because of the connections, obviously with Rick, the the uh, the backing tracks were done with Paul Burgess on drums. Mm. Okay. Um, uh, what a what a one of the first things that I learned within a couple of weeks was that um, Graham had played acoustic guitar on it. Right. And it was a it was it was quite a high quality album in the end, but it never, as far as I know, it never saw the light of day. But it was the first time I came across. I had only known Graham as Ten CC's bassist and vocalist and co-songwriter. Yes. Mm. So 
what happened was I was hearing this um, really, really well put together acoustic guitar, um, and it was Graham, and that's when I realised that that um, that's really that's really his strength, or yes. one of them, one of his many. Yes. That's right. Just just before we leave this album project, it, it's quite interesting. Uh, you're, you're right, I think, Mark. Um, I don't think it was ever released, this album. Um, but there is a bit of um, information, actually, on um, Alistair Gordon's website. Um, yeah, he was signed to Kennedy Street Enterprises, which explains yeah. the Rick Dixon and therefore the Strawberry Connection. Um, yeah. And this project never came to anything, but he was later picked up by Ahmet Ertegen uh, for Atlantic. Don't know whether you right. saw this, Sean. And, no. Um, and he actually, it's funny this, uh, Mark, myself and Sean are big Genesis fans, and we mm -hmm. always find these weird Genesis connections because uh, this fella, Alistair Gordon, were, ended up, probably through, through the Atlantic connection, um, being one of the two co-lead vocalists on the Tony Banks solo album called Bank Statement. That's right. Oh, right. So then I mean, that's not all he did, um, but that's the one thing which kind of piqued my interest. Um, so, uh, yeah, so he, yes, as you say, he went on to have a very successful career, mostly, you know, uh, not too high profile, but, he, but, but a successful career nonetheless. Yeah, um, he had but, a good recording voice, Alistair. Okay. Right, yes, uh, yes. Uh, he was very good at doubling his voice and, and things like that, and there's, it's, that's just, it's a skill in itself. Yes. Yes, that's right, double tracking. But both Sean and I, and maybe you yourself, have had a go at that, and um, it with, with variable results sometimes, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but it's a, it's uh, yeah. a lot of fun. It's it's a wonderful process, isn't it, Mark? Building, uh, building these creations in the studio, you can get lost in it, can't you? Yeah, it you, you, you can, and and um, I think one of the things is that. One of the telltale signs of the analog days was that people who could do it were always doing it against um, with a, a, a time factor, mm, and right. this wasn't this wasn't people messing about at home on Cubase with all the time in the world. <laughs> this was where there was studio time booked, very expensive studio time booked, and if you were if you were going to get things done, you had to really get them done and. That was one of the litmus tests of people, good studio musicians mm. then. Um, and you couldn't really go back and redo things. So and he was good at, very good at that, Alistair. He was very good at getting the part done. Mm. We'll live thing that I had was a monitor mix of the album on cassette ah, and Martin once asked me if I had one because he wanted to uh, he wanted to play it to somebody somewhere for, uh, for, for some reason so I gave it to him mm. and I never saw it again oh, and the rest okay. is history oh, but, um, it, it was a really nice album, it was nicely put together and of course it featured 
um, most of Sad Cafe as well. Okay. Right. Right. Yeah. On it. Um, Ashley Mulford played lead guitar on it. Um, uh, Vic Emerson played. Tell us a little bit more about about Martin and, and his his gifts, Mark. We've we've heard a number of our guests have raved about his skill in the studio. Obviously, Kevin and Lowell raved about the marvels that he performed on the Consequences record. But what were what were your own thoughts and memories of of Martin's skills? Uh, Martin was um, he was always up for trying something. Hmm. Uh, that there could sometimes there could sometimes be coming out of Strawberry um, a, a, a little bit of a standard drum sound, mm. and that's that's not in a derogatory way. It, it's a, it's a compliment, I, I guess, to the the quality of the gear and the the drums being used, etc., and the, the drummer. But Martin. Um, always had a, a habit of trying to add something or take something away, mm. and he was very creative in, in in that way. He did it with the, the, there was a there was a, a a thing that was typical of Martin. In I might be jumping the gun here onto something else, but on when we did the "Don't Ask" track hmm. um, for the ten out of ten album, um, he uh, w- he he put together. We both did it. He he put together. Um, a, a distorted guitar chord on. I think it was. I think it's on bar four of the intro, and it's okay. a, it's a a diving guitar part that sweeps back up mm. for, for the that meets the beginning of bar five, and uh, it was done with very speed and a load of sellotape and pens stuck <laughs> to it, and, and 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 it was done at half speed because I think I think at the time I think it was being recorded at 30 ips the backing track oh my word right. so i think we slowed the 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 two inch tape down to 15 and mm. um, as this chord was played he then with tape tape and i can't, can't remember exactly what the gadget was he sped the tape up and twirled the very speed knob around <laughs> and sped the tape up. Um, so of course you play it back and the and the pitch dips. Yes. But the the clever thing was he got it to to come back up exactly on the beat of bar five, which was, that was the difficult part, and it was typical of Martin that. Sort of um, a little bit above and beyond sometimes. That's interesting because, well, for many reasons, one thing which strikes me, we think of 10CC Mark II and particularly when you're into 
by the time of look here and 10 out of 10 that the you don't associate that era perhaps with experimentation mm -hmm. the way you do with the original foursome or, or maybe with godly and cream but it's clear there that under the surface all of that ingenuity was still firing on all cylinders mm. so it's interesting yeah definitely yeah. I, I love that, those sort of stories and we do we do associate them don't we with the early 70s mid 70s 10 cc where yeah. particularly Kevin and Lowell are coming up with really off-the-wall ideas. Um, and it sounds like Martin really took the mantle, didn't he? Yeah, I think he did. And I think they all learned off each other. Mm. The whole thing's always a learning curve anyway, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Tell us, so you mentioned Don't Ask there, Mark. I, I really like that track. I think it's a great opener for 10 out of 10. Um, yeah. I presume Eric wasn't in that session, am I right? Yeah, no, he wasn't. It was the first session. Uh, I, do you know, I was thinking about this the other day as well, We, which is another story. Hmm. When the new desk was put in, the new Formula Sound desk, which mm. was built and constructed upstairs at Formula Sound, who had at the top floor at Strawberry. Right. right. Um, the, the desk was built there and was carried down. And when it was installed, we had a few test sessions and a few m m uh, playing about with them. But I think that 10cc session was the first one on the new Formula Sound desk. Ah. Wow. in time we think this was kind of mid to late 1980 is, is that what is that right mark yeah i, I think so yeah i, I can okay. be slightly blurry on on yeah. the exact part of of any year well it, no is, worries. it is 40 years ago mark so you've got yeah you, you've got a free pass <laughs> on that one so don't worry i'll tell you what it's like now i've got no woman The red desk, which was the Formula Sound, uh, which was the Helios desk, sorry, yes. which had, had been modified over the years and had once been smaller and had been then modified and more channels put, put in. That, uh, which was iconic. I mean, that that desk, what, what the things that went through that desk, you know. Oh, absolutely. Uh, we all know, we all know about that. <laughs> um, and that desk came out. And it swapped places with the new desk, and it went up upstairs to Formula Sound, mm. and they uh, revitalised it a bit and just gave it a little bit of a, an upgrade. And that went into a new studio over the road that was okay. that, that was Strawberry Two, and mm. I think it became called Yellow. Yes, in yes. the end. Yeah. But the new the new Formula Sound desk. Um, was was kind of we'd all had a little bit of a say in 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 how we thought it should be, which was great because it was unbelievably user friendly. It was fabulous, mm. right? And um, I think it was the 10cc session that that was the first full session on that um, on the on the new Formula Sound desk, and it was wow. don't ask. And it was Paul, of course, on drums yep. with the he, he, with the playing the 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 silver Yamaha kit. Right. 
that yeah you only really saw live and yeah. um i remember rick dixon was never keen for paul to use that kit other than for 10cc because i think it was a sponsorship deal i think yamaha i think because he gave uh they, they had the, the two double kits didn't they that yes. at the time stuart tosh played the other one <laughs> There's a lot of drums there going on. So it was Paul on the Yamaha kit. And uh, I, I can remember you were talking about Neumanns. I can remember we put um, two U87s over, over him as overhead mics, which mm. was quite a luxury. Yes. Um, I think they were about... I think they were about two and a half grand a piece then in the 70s. That is incredible because normally you'd have a couple of pencil condensers or something, wouldn't you, over the kit? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So I I remember that. And um, I also remember there was... uh, uh, Graham put the guitar down. There's a few things that happened on that. Um, One of them was when I was in the studio miking Paul up, he was going through the, the backing track with Graham who had a Fender Strat hmm. plugged straight direct into a, a Fender Twin yeah. amp. And um, it was there that I realised what a handy player he, Graham was. Yeah. Um, because they were just going through, we were just getting a sound up on everything, and Graham was playing a lot of v- really, really clever little um, licks on his on his. Stratocaster, you know, and it was this is one of one of these things that you learn as time goes on about some of some of these guys have have other skills that you didn't know about, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a lovely, clean, punchy sound on it, and yeah. that stuck with me for forty years. So it must have sounded good. <laughs> Yeah, and, and Graham did play a lot of of that clean rhythm stuff, didn't he? On the on the original Ten CC stuff. Yeah, he did a lot. He did an awful lot of those clean rhythm upstrokey stuff and the reggae the reggae stuff and the the very very tight, um, very crisp little up chippy choppy chords and, and yes, that stuff. exactly. The, the intro to Minestrone being a, a classic example, I guess. Yeah. And and he's also he's all over a dreadlock holiday mm. and you know that with those that a lot of that clean stuff. Sure. Was Rick Fenn uh, in the room uh, when they were kind of setting up for that? Or did he come in for a separate session? Yeah, I don't think Rick was there at, at first. Um, okay. He, um, Mark Jordan was there. Right. Mark, Mark was just got kind of learning the track as well. Hmm. He was he was just kind of warming up to it. I don't know if he already knew it, but he, he was. Um, but the, yeah, the way they worked it. It, it was fascinating watch, watching how they worked because for, from being a, a a fan of them from the outside, all of a sudden you're watching this thing go on mm. uh, before your very eyes, you know. And the thing that struck me was how absolutely polished they are. Yeah. And there's 
one or two little drop-ins. When what, what once we got the original the uh, the drum track, uh, Graham is 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 very polished and very clean and punchy, and it goes down very quickly. Mm. So um, this, so the original track. Am I right in thinking this was basically a three-piece? Uh, the drums. Uh, essentially rhythm guitar and keyboard no bass at this stage as far as you can remember is that right i don't remember there being a bass but the 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 thing is is that um i think because graham wrote it Mm. anyway graham knew the bass uh the bass to it Uh, what did impress me as well about graham uh, uh, over the years was uh, i realized that his bass parts Coming from coming from somebody who's such a prolific songwriter himself, mm. he always put seemed to put the best bass parts down for the song, and I think it's just because he had a natural. He was joined to the thing umbilically anyway because he wrote it. <laughs> in in many ways, Graham as a bass player reminds both Paul and me, of both Paul McCartney and Brian Wilson, where, you know, yeah. both both bass players, and they, they approach the instrument in an extremely musical way, don't they? Yes, he often, he, was it, I think it was the Sadaka Sessions um, was one example he gave where he kind of relished putting the bass on last mm. because it gave him a chance to sort of play around with the, the harmony of it a little bit and yes. just have that have those different melodic lines which which sort of added a lot to the track and and that's something McCartney certainly did he would put his bass on last certainly in the the latter part of the Beatles career yeah yeah and it was the the percussive mechanics of it as well also you Mm. get the two together he was he was superb at choosing his notes because he's because he was so um experienced with his with with chords intricate knowledge of chords um it it find and what what i found on um with that one that even on don't ask was that um when he put the bass part down it it was it was only afterwards that you realized how good it was mm. right mm-hmm. within the song yes yes um because Mark Jordan, of course, had a few had, had quite a bit of full chords to put in mm. on that. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mentioning Mark Jordan, it reminds me that um, he played on a couple of tracks on on that ten out of ten album, didn't he, Mark? You, you, but yeah. we've mentioned Don't Ask, but he he played on a track called You Did That for Me, didn't he? Yeah, he did. And uh, until he sent me that the copy of that other tape. Mm. <laughs> tape from Strawberry, I couldn't remember the 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 title of it because it became Action Man in a Motown Suit. Right. right. And I only realised it had changed when the album came up back up again, finished, and mm. I heard right. it. Ah, they've they've had a little. But um, yeah, Mark Jordan was was great. <laughs> I, I had a funny moment actually, where on on Don't Ask in the chorus, the organ, um, part way through the draw the, the draw bars change and, and he couldn't get to them, so we both ended up playing it. I I <laughs> went in the 
I went in the studio and I <laughs> I pushed the door bars for him while he played he played the chords. So uh, that's that's my claim to fame. <laughs> they're great, uncredited, but you're on there. But and um, yeah, yeah, pulling out all the stops, eh? Oh, very yeah. good, <laughs> very good. Um, talking about Mark Jordan, isn't it interesting because he was signed uh, with Harvey back in the 60s? don't know whether you two knew that. Um, no, no. He's an American or Canadian musician, I think. Yeah. And he's one of these people who had a kind of long association with, with Strawberry. And I, I, I don't know exactly what he did, but I think he did some work in Strawberries way back in the late 60s. And then they hooked up with him again, um, you know, at this time. Uh uh, so that you know, he goes back a long way with with uh, well, with the kind of Manchester guys. Mm. Yeah, I didn't know that at the time, and it was only recently I was re- just reading a bit a bit about him, and he he goes far and wide, doesn't he? Yeah, he's played on. He's I can't I can't remember who, but he's played on some great sessions, um, as well as being a you know a, a great musician in his own right, and he's got his own material out as well. We are He was a lovely Rhodes player, a lovely right. Fender Rhodes player, I, I remember. He, he, he seemed to pick those nice dis- discordant two notes together. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Chords. Um, and, uh, yeah, and he was a great, the, the that organ part, that was on the, the C3 organ with the Leslie and everything. Oh, what a sound. Uh, and it was fantastic in the, in the studio. And the... The, uh, the funny thing was that just Mark had the headphones on, so he was nodding to me to push the draw bars. So <laughs> right. on, on, all I could hear was the organ going through this Leslie, and it <laughs> sounded absolutely fabulous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, marvellous. Yeah. So, so, that's, so that's the track. And then can you remember, um, going back to Don't Ask again, how, how they moved on when Rick came in, and, and what do you remember about the vocal session, if you were there for that? Yeah, um, Rick. Rick came in quite quick, quite quite early on. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I remember Rick playing other guitars on "Don't Ask." Um, uh, it's, played- it says he's. It says he's on there. Um, in fact, in fact, the only two tracks he plays on on ten out of ten are, if I have this right, um, "Don't Ask" and "Action Man in a Motown Suit." Uh, 
he did play on both of them. And yeah. what I was re- referring to that he, he, he without doubt played the solo on Don't Ask. Oh, okay, okay. Um, right. uh, but I was just trying to think whether or not, I don't think he played any of the other guitar parts. Okay, but right. Rick played it um, on a, a Fender Strat. It was the same as Graham's, but I don't think it was Graham's. They both had a sunburst maple neck Strat. Right. Um, and I think it was Rick's own he bought. I can't remember if there was... I can't remember seeing them both together, actually, either. But <laughs> we played it on a, um, on a sunburst strap with a maple neck. And it, we we, um, we sent his feed through into the studio into his amp and wound it up and gave it some a bit of... Not too much gain, but for plenty of sustain, mm. etc. And um, so he was sat next to us and we in the control room when he okay. played it. And, right. um, we we put it, um, as far as I remember, we put it together uh, in about about four pieces, I think. But there was a there was a session there was um, a period before we started where we were getting getting Rick's sound up and Martin put some delayed reverb on it and mm. it wasn't going to be used on the track because it was it was it was huge it was monstrous um but we I, I put a piece of quarter inch tape on the stereo machines and we recorded about half an hour of Rick just playing this swell volume swell stuff on his Stratocaster with this uh, um uh, delayed reverb on it delayed plates Oh wow! And, um, it was absolutely monstrous, and uh, <laughs> with that, the four of us—me, Martin, Graham, and Rick—were just sat there in in the control room for for quite a while, just <laughs> enjoying this little moment. <laughs> oh, how amazing! And do you know? I think um, we, we've got a friend called David Jarvis, uh, Mark, who's based uh, in Wigan, um, who's kind of. Graham's official archivist and, and curator uh, and Graham sends Dave all of, of, of his old tapes, session tapes rehearsals, songwriting sessions rare things and about a year ago Dave sent me a, a tape of Rick um, playing this kind of weird thing um, and I'll see if I can find it uh, I won't be able to send it to you because Dave kind of guards this stuff with his, yeah. with his life but we could certainly play it uh, for you, and I'd love to, I'd love you to tell me if that's what you're describing here. It sounds like a really fascinating uh, session. Wow. Yeah, it, it might well be. I, I guess it, it's not the only time that they've, you know, people have sat experimenting with with bits and bobs with Rick and and, and the lights. But it was a moment, and and it it it, it was something that was certainly worth re- recording and. Saving for posterity. Yes. Um, so yeah, it could be that, wouldn't it? Be funny if it was. Absolutely. It could be. Yeah, that's that's not the piece I was referring to. Ah, right. Okay. Um, yeah, it's obviously an, an, another piece of something. I'm trying to think of those. There's some 
there's some nice kind of chord work in yeah. there. Yeah. Um, yeah. The the one I the, the one that we you'd identify the one that I meant because it's it's with um, he swells his guitar with his volume control. Okay. 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 Yeah. So there's no attack on his guitar. Like like, right. like, like Steve Hackett um, kind of yeah. pioneered. It's yeah. Like, Wonderful sound. Um, String like violin like, yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the questions I asked Pete Tattersall when we when we met up with him and Peter Wadsworth at, at Strawberry, um, yeah. I asked Pete about that delayed reverb because it's something that. Eric was using in the mid seventies, and I think it is a wonderful, rich, and and very uncommon sound. It's so satisfying on the ear, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's as full. It's as full as you'll get. Yeah. It happened a lot there. Um, something I was going to say about Paul's drum sound that Martin got mm-hmm. for on on that with the Yamaha kit. Normally, the way it's done, you slowly get the sound up, etc., etc., and you get the balances, and eventually you tell the drummer to to fire away and go all guns, yes. and you get, you get your full full balance. And on that session, when Paul was playing, and Martin used to have the he used to have the monitors quite loud as well um, for that, mm. um, and Paul was absolutely letting go. And I can remember sat there thinking. This is actually as good as it gets. <laughs> and it was through the, the the JBLs, the strawberry JBLs in that control room. The speakers, you, the speakers, you mean, with, yeah. With that drummer, yeah. with that bit, uh, on in that moment, and um, yeah, for me, and I haven't heard anything like it since obviously we, we don't all always have access to a, a control room like strawberry but um <laughs> i never heard it i never heard anything like it uh when the digital era arrived mm. yeah absolutely can i um ask something that fascinates me here i wonder if 10 out of 10 is the only 10 cc album that was recorded at both strawberries and and i get the sense that that graham was was very much kind of exclusively recording at Strawberry North and Eric likewise down south in Dorking. Um, I've got a, a couple of a couple of angles for questions here. What one yeah. is um, did you ever did you ever sit in a session w- with Eric? Um, and did you work down at Strawberry at Strawberry South? Um, yeah. The the first one, I didn't sit on in on sessions with Eric, but he was there quite a lot. And there was times where I wasn't on a session with him, but I was in the studio and I, I was around and uh, there, there were things like that. And yes. it, it, there was a, some of that went more on uh, after 10 out of 10. And um, I don't think Eric, in in the recording of the, that album, I don't think Eric came up at all. Right. And Graham... Because he still lived up here, he he lived in Mottram St Andrew. Yes, and 
Um, so up here was still his kind of home base, but uh, as as the, as the song don't ask says, it, you know, there'd been a l- little bit of uh, turmoil hmm. going on in Graham's life, um, hmm. and I think he did eventually moved away, but. Um, the, funnily enough, inside the cover of 10 Out of 10, there's a picture of Eric and Graham kind of with each other sm- smiling. Right. Um, and it's 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 at Graham's house. Ah. So, you know, people were talking about a divide. There wasn't a, there was, wasn't a total separation. They really shouldn't be there. And here's Graham. Get down. LA afraid of bullshit never says no LA insatiable you don't have to go LA charisma she should be a star LA sincerity Did, did you, uh, did you, were you able to observe the dynamic between the two of them then? Did you see the two of them interacting, working together and did you notice any tension or was it not as bad as that? No, I didn't see any. I, I didn't see anything of them working together. Okay. It was just. It was a. It was a strange experience because what happened that we did what we did up at Strawberry North, and Eric was working on his tracks at, at Strawberry South, and then Graham went down to Strawberry South and to finish it. And they were, they were, he was, must have been down there for quite some time. And uh, eventually the album was finished and Graham came in one morning and he'd, he he had the copy master for us mm. of the finished album. And we had a playback in the control room at Strawberry North through those JBLs. Mm. And, um, and I heard some of it for the first time ever. And wow. the, one of the one of the strangest things, if if you've done any recording yourselves, is that what one of the one of the odd, really odd things is that when you've when you've worked as an engineer or a tape op or a musician or anything on, on a track, you can never ever hear it for the first time. <laughs> yes. And what happened was Graham came up, and. Um, I heard the tracks I was familiar with and uh, et cetera. And there'd been a little bit of extra extra stuff put on here and there. And then they slightly changed the track we mentioned before into Action Man. Yeah. Um, and that was revamped a bit. But um, I think that's what I shared on the Facebook feed that, that time that, that where, where we met was that um, when I heard Survivor in that control room, it was it was absolutely monstrous. I, it was I love that track. This boy, he's a midnight driver, high roller and a soul survivor. She tried to send him on his way. He said, I want to stay. It yeah. absolutely took my breath away, oh. yeah. Yeah, what an experience, especially hearing it there. Fantastic. Mm. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, wow. Yeah, some things we never forget, do we? Yeah, exactly. No, absolutely. The, the 10 out of 10 sessions, and, and we sort of know this a bit more from Liam's excellent book, of course. Um, as far as I know, and I don't know whether you were uh, privy to this, Mark, I'm not sure whether 10CC were an active 
uh, entity at the start of the sessions, they'd kind of split up and they were working separately in the Strawberry Diary, you know, book, uh, it's block booked as Graham Goldman sessions, not mm. 10CC sessions, for example. And I think that at the end, it, they decided to pull their resources, uh, do some overdubs and kind of thread the tracks together so it looked like they were working together on some tracks and, and call it a 10CC album. I think that's what happened with 10 out of 10. Yeah, I, I, I would go with that. Mm. Uh, there, yeah. was there, was, there was certainly autonomous. Right. Yeah. Um, apart from the, the the latter part of it, which I know nothing about, which was when Graham was down at, at Dorking. Mm. Right. Okay. Okay. And and they were the, the, there were some things that obviously came together then. Um, uh, another absolutely gorgeous track, uh, lying here with you. Oh yes. yes. All our cares will drift away. Leave them all until another day. I don't really mind as long as I can find that I'm lying here with you. I think it even says it on t on ten out of ten. Eric said it. He thought it was the, the best song that Graham had ever written. Hmm. Yeah, um, that's a really good point. That must be a crucial track because Graham mentioned that song to us and. Um, yeah, he sort of mentioned it in the context of he could have sung it. Well, obviously he could have sung it because he wrote it, but he was happy to give it to Eric to sing and he thought Eric did a wonderful job. Yeah, Eric you, took it to another place, didn't he? He did, and I guess that must have been quite a quite an important song in terms of kind of bringing the two back together, possibly. Mm -hmm. Something they both admired and they both really worked on together. Yeah, and also, from what people say, I don't, I don't believe... That you can come out with a piece like that that's written by Graham, sung like that by Eric, and the strings put on by Vic on his um, on his synth, mm -hmm. and Graham put a, a guitar on it. I, I don't think you can produce something like that if there's too much discord between you. <laughs> Very good point. Yeah, you might you might have a good point there, um, and it, it's interesting, isn't it, seeing the way this album was put together. In initially kind of like the, the way they put Mirror Mirror together, Mark. I'm not sure how familiar you are with with their last no. album. That really was two completely autonomous um, half albums that were then kind of um, nailed together. Um, but it's, it's interesting seeing them have a first attempt at a 10cc record working yeah. at, at two ends of the country. Yeah. And, and of course, there was another change which was, I, I, I'm not sure if it was the next album, but they, they, but Martin Lawrence engineered the album. Here on the street, feeling the cool of the dawn, shuffling feet, faces ragged and warm. They've been working all night, waiting for the curtain. Uh, Windows in the Jungle, you that's mean? Right. Or, that, that's right. That's yes. right. Yeah. Yes, he did, and that that was recorded all at Strawberry North, was it? It was. Yeah. 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 Were you were and, you uh, were you a part of that uh, of those sessions? No, no, I wasn't there then. I'm trying to think who who came in. I think there was a guy called CJ. Yes. Yep. Peter Wadsworth has has told us about CJ. Um, yeah, I think he was the 
the engineer mainly on that. Yeah, but for 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 uh, Eric to concede engineering to Martin was a was is a first because mm. um, he. He's got to be one of the best engineers out there, Eric, hasn't he? Yes. Well, he has, but obviously after his accident, he wasn't uh, either willing or able to sort of work with for prolonged periods as an engineer, I think. I mean, I could yeah. be wrong there, but it may have something to do with it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure about the wise and Air Force, but that sounds about right, doesn't it? It did take a lot out of him, didn't it? This is all wonderful detail. It's fly-on-the-wall stuff. I'm loving this, it, Mark. It really yeah. is. And um, <laughs> most of the people we've spoken to, Mark, um, bless them, and understandably don't have such vivid memories of, of studio sessions. So you're giving us um, uh, yeah. thrills galore here, I have to say. Yeah. Can, you, can we just go back to um, the, the vocals? Because we, I'm, uh, on, on Don't Ask particularly, or on Action Man, um, now, I'm guessing, I know Martin and yourself were engineering, but I'm guessing Graham was calling the shots on those sessions. He was the producer. I, I assume that's correct. And also, yeah, can you remember anything about how how the vocals were done? I, I don't know who, whether it was all Graham or whether um, others sang on that track. On the backing vocals, I think Mark Jordan sang. Okay. Yeah. I, 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 I seem to remember Mark Jordan singing. Yeah, I can't remember too much more about that, but okay. I remember I remember watching Graham's something else that I, I learned about the way, the way he works. So I can remember him doing his lead vocal, and he's very, very, very sharp in and out, and and um, almost animated onto the mic and off it, and. Mm. Um, okay. it, you could you could tell he's done so much of it over the years and uh, 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 learned so much. Mm-hmm. Everybody needs a little lubrication. Someone with imagination gotta break the ice. You're saying that his mic technique was was really on it. Is that what is that the point you're making? Yeah, I think that's. I think yeah, you put it a lot better than I did. No, 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 sorry. Um, and it, it was something that until you've seen it, you wouldn't know it goes on because mm. it's, it's it's going back to this um, being fortunate to be on the inside of something. Uh, mm. There was another funny thing on that, and that's that when Graham was playing his um, clean chords, mm. clean strap things on "Don't Ask," um, he he was on he. He, he, he doubled the parts. He was slightly unhappy with the intonation, I think, on his guitar. There was something not right. I think it was his intonation. So when we had a we had a break for tea, and I and the um, they got Ted Lee in, who was I don't do you know that you I guess you'll know the name Ted Lee. I, no, I don't think so. I don't. Yeah, he, he's the he was the guitar tech for them. Right, and he was a he was a quite quite uh, well known guitar luthier and and techie. He went on tour with them actually. Okay, and they'd got Ted Lee in to come and have a look at it. So uh, they broke for tea and went out somewhere, and I hung on to see Ted Lee. And it, Ted Lee came down and he picked Graham Strat up in the 
control room and he took it into this middle room where there was a table and other things. He, he, he put it down and he, he just got these wire cutters and he, he just went straight through the strings and cut them all off. And what? I thought, oh, Lordy, you've done it now. <laughs> <laughs> but um, he knew what he was doing, the guy. Yeah. So, he started back from scratch again. He cut all the strings off it. And this is in, this is mid-session. This is right. mid- Good grief. Yeah. And I cut all the strings off it. He, uh, I think he, he loosened the neck, he retightened it, he, he did a little bit with, with the, the truss rod on it and he restrung it and he did it. It was so quick. And then uh, he just put it back on its stand. <laughs> <laughs> and he left and apparently it was A1. Um, <laughs> before, you, <laughs> before your tea had even had a chance to cool down. Yeah, <laughs> it gave me a bit of a fright, actually, when he, when he just went straight through it with wire cutters. Yeah, oh, he knows brilliant. what he's doing, the guy. Absolutely. Tell me, Mark, uh, an, another thing that, that excites me as a, as a, a fellow audio geek, um, I hear a distinct difference in sonic qualities between Strawberry North and Strawberry South recordings. Am I imagining this? But what I hear from the kind of late 70s and early 80s Strawberry South is a kind of duller, flatter sound. Am I making that up or was it just literally the, the way that Eric had started to engineer and produce things? Do you know where I'm coming from? Hazy days, lazy ways, we got less done Yeah, I do. Um, y- you know, it's a very hard one to call that. Strawberry South, the studio area was was massive, right? And they had they had there were there were bays in it with traps in it, etc. Yeah, and and they they had um, it. Well, I, you probably know it was an old cinema. Yeah, mm-hmm. and. The control room was similar from what I remember, but, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to call that. Yeah, the size of it, the size of the studio area might have had something to do with it. But other than, other than that, I wouldn't really know. Wow, how, how interesting. I mean, for me, the the kind of polar opposites, if you if you listen to How Dare You and then straight, yeah. straight after that listen to Bloody Tourists... There's a massive difference in in the kind of there's very much a, a bright sparkle about how dare you, and whereas bloody tourist seems to be deliberately dull. It's they're both wonderful sounds. I think there's a lovely yeah. warmth about bloody tourist, but it doesn't have the same sparkle. And I just wonder, you know, if if there might have been some kind of technical reason, maybe it was something in the oxygen down south <laughs> that made it sound different. <laughs> Well, maybe, was it something to do with the separation? You mentioned the size of the room, therefore it was partitioned into different areas or something. I don't know. What do you do in the morning? What do you do in the morning when I'm gone? Yeah, it could be. There's so many factors that mm. could be. I, I, I know when I've done my own recording for, for myself, um, 
sometimes you don't realise things until you compare them. Mm. And a lot of the time when you're recording something and it's it's mid-recording, um, you, you don't have you, you're not able to compare it to something of the of, of previous. Yes. And it's only when finished that you can compare it. And sometimes you do get a little bit of a surprise of the, the difference. But I, I wouldn't have thought that w- there would be any intention. No. Um, and I don't know. I, I don't know if it if it's because it, obviously it was analog and it was vinyl, and I don't know if it if, if it was a difference between what was being done in in the mastering at, at Strawberry Westminster. Oh yes, of course, because um, our, our friend Melvin uh, was the the chap down in London, wasn't he, mastering stuff? The, uh, Melvin Abraham. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> That's a question for Eric, if and when we get to speak to him, Sean. Yeah, fingers crossed, and I'm touching wood as we as we speak there. <laughs> but that would be yeah. so that would be so so good. Can I ask Mark what um, other projects you went on to after your illustrious start with Ten Out of Ten? What other stuff did you do at Strawberry? I did uh, quite a lot with Martin Hannett, which uh, oh. when, uh, who did a lot of the 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 newer stuff and he did a lot of the factory stuff now it's time for doing the mixing what instrument on what track is first inscribed on the desk and then it's time to start listening beginning always with the drum tracks first drum ambience well sort of stereo picture of the drum kit there wayne's guitar That's the same. Yeah, interesting little bit of texture. Is this an art form or are you just a technician? <laughs> Come on, serious question. Is this an art form or are you just a technician? Is this a television broadcast? Yes. Mm. Uh, I, I don't know. Of course it's an, an art form, yeah. I mean, it's also mm. something else. It's their living. <laughs> Credits there: Studio Strawberry Stockport, Engineer Christopher Nagel. And um, I, do, I used to mi- do mixing sessions with him um, when Chris Nagel, who was the, uh, the other engineer at Strawberry, yes, um, he was quite often away with Ten CC on tour. Mm-hmm. And so I used to take his place, and I used to work with Martin Hannett. So. I, I covered a, a load of things. It wasn't really, um, really my cup of tea, mm-hmm. and it was where it was moving into the, the digital era. This was where, this was beyond the eighties, and things were changing. Yes, and um, to, to be honest, I began to struggle with some of it. Um, I felt we were. It, I felt it was for me, just for me. It was slightly taking a wrong turn. Right. Mm-hmm. And we were leaving something behind and burning our bridges a little bit. That's how I felt. And mm. the, okay. the the tape machines were, were going and the grand pianos were going mm. and the drum kits were going in a, in a lot of studios. And, um, yeah, I struggled. Uh, I struggled with it. I, I'd, um, I'd rather have, have stayed analogue, but the, 
we can't have that, can we? It's progress, and we have to let go sometimes. Did Did you work? Did you work with any of the factory bands then, with Martin? Um, no, only mixing. Right. Okay. Uh, which was just between me and Martin. And uh, if you if you if you know about him, he was a night owl. <laughs> We've uh, heard stories. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of stories about Martin. <laughs> he was a he was a lovely guy though, and he um he knew what he was doing as well. He had an amazing passion and an amazing vision. Yes, I was going to say he's 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 well known as a real visionary, and I was going to ask what your opinion was of that, Mark. Do you, do you feel he was a visionary? Yeah, I think um, yeah, I think some of it was slightly coloured with lifestyle. <laughs> um, <laughs> As is, as is often the case, you know, that's the creative world, isn't it? Yes. Um, but um, he he certainly made a mark and uh, he was well sought after as well. But he was inventive, Martin, and, and inventive and spontaneous, yeah. which I like about him. But I, I did the um, uh, Sad Café Olay album as well at Strawberry, which uh, that was a... That was a good project for us. That was a good three-month album. I don't want to lose you. Can't you see that's enough? I don't want to lose it now. Mm, brilliant. Uh, and who, was, who was the producer on that, Mark? Uh, that was Martin. Okay. Right. Well, I, yeah. didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah, it was... Um, Eric had done the... The albums before that, I yep. think the two albums before that, certainly yes. had, yes. Um, and they'd done Everyday Hurts, etc., and they'd done all that at Strawberry South. And um, I think, I think, um, Sad Cafe were in a position, it, it, it's where it, it, this turning point in the around 1980, things just began to shift, mm. and I think everybody struggled with it. There's a lot of established musicians who were struggling to shift copies of, of recorded material. And then there was people kind of turning up with a Casio keyboard and a, and a four-chord song, and they were they were charting and they were, they yeah. were coining it in, you know. Mm. And it, it was a strange time. And I think Sad Café, I think with Olay, it was generally regarded by Polydor as their, you know, the last throw of the dice for a big-budget major album. Yes. Um, and I think it was a good album. Um, I think it was nicely put together, and Martin was 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 excellent. I thought on it, his, his, his production, mm. etc. Mm. Um, but I, I, I think something had just shifted, and they sounded two seventies for the eighties. Yes, and and Ten CC kind of mirrored that in a way, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, they did, and I think that's where. Um, that's that's where the ten out of ten album. I think that's probably where where one of the reasons that they were just having a, a problem with direction, and mm. as everybody else was who'd had success in the analog, it it was um, there was a lot of meritocracy in analog recording. Mm. In um, if you if you put together a great recording that's simply what you were you were great hmm. because what there wasn't an easy way to do it otherwise yeah it was a kind of a a craftsman's pursuit wasn't it it wasn't it, yeah. it wasn't a case of plugging in a drum machine and a casio keyboard it was actually about craftsmanship well, you were- 
another funny memory I have of Dave Irving, Sad Cafe's drummer. Yes. When we were working on Olay, we did a, a song called Follow You Anywhere. And we decided to try the new Lindrum. And mm. it was it was it was hot off the press at the time. Um so the drums on that song were done on the Lindrum, but not programmed. They were manually played because it was like a typewriter. Right. <laughs> manually play it. But what I won't forget is the site of Dave Irving, who was really big and well built. And with this tiny little plastic thing in this kit, and there was something just not right about it. <laughs> Although it was a great track in the end, I don't know if you know it, but it's it, no, it, we, but we'll, we'll insert that one into the pod for yeah, sure. Yeah, definitely, we'll, yeah. we'll we'll find that one out. We, we thought at the time that it was going to be the next Everyday Hurts, but okay. it, it didn't chart the way that we thought it would, and it was. I think it was because of this. This time that that yeah. I was mentioning before, where the, the, the 70s were moving into the 80s, and some things were going wrong for some people, mm. yeah. and there was yeah. not a way to claw it back. Yeah, right. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, I'd yeah. be fascinated, Mark, to hear what you think of consequences because personally I feel it's literally the pinnacle of analog recording I've said it a few times before but well, what's your thoughts on it for as much as it has pleased almighty god of his great mercy to take unto himself the soul of our brothers here departed we therefore commit their bodies to the ground earth to earth ashes to ashes dust to dust I didn't personally. I was I was around it a little a little bit, not working on it, but I was around it, and I, I knew Martin well, who was you know, well as you know deeply involved. Sure. Um, I think they had a lot of things going for them at the time. They had a wealth of experience. They had a new they had a new technique in the gizmo. Mm-hmm. They had a long amount of studio time, plus all their own experience, etc. And and the um, li- and the lifestyle uh, influence as well that you mentioned earlier. If you get uh, my drift, yeah, I think it. I think it's always always can be in there somewhere. Hmm. Um, and and yeah, and they had they had time. They had the luxury of time, and uh, they they knew what they wanted to do and. There's some absolutely incredible stuff on there, but mm. it's it's not easy listening. No. <laughs> so I think um, I think the general public were never going to take to it, <laughs> and they didn't. Everybody of knew that. <laughs> Did you meet Kevin Lowell? Did you ever see them at Strawberry? Yeah, I saw them at Strawberry North, yeah, quite a bit. I didn't work with them. Um, I think the last thing that they ever... Was it the last thing they ever did at Strawberry North was Consequences? Yes, with Martin. And, um, and, yeah, so everything else they did from Consequences onwards was... I think they they did a lot at, at, at their homes, didn't they? 
of recording. They did, yes. but before before they moved there, their second and third albums were recorded at Surrey Sound down south. Yeah. When Kevin Lowell were around, um, what what were they doing? Uh, they all always seems to be a bit of a joke going on, a bit of a laugh going on with with something. I, I, th- yeah. I think it's the the creative mind, isn't it? <laughs> remember they were they were there on the night. Um, we're all sat downstairs on the night on crossroads when was it somebody called Meg? Yeah, one of the main characters, I think. Was was going to be burned in some fire, and right. we all sat and watched it. And remember, before the as as, as the program came came on, I remember Kevin had his cigarette lighter under the TV. (laughs) 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 The things we remember. Here's a question slightly from left field. Um, um, John Lennon's murder on December the 8th, 1980. Mm. I just wondered whether the studio was, whether you or the studio was working at that point. Because I've heard other, heard stories of other musicians who were, you know, recording albums at that, at that point, And it had a sort of profound effect. And obviously the straw, the, the, the studio isn't named after Strawberry Fields Forever. I just wonder whether, whether you remember that uh, at all. Obviously you remember Lennon's murder, but I wonder whether you were, whether you were working in the studio at that time. Yeah, we were working that day, and right. uh, I remember who, what what we were working on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember there was a sombre tone to the whole day, and um, m- more so with Peter Peter Tattersall, because mm. right. um, you know, in all this, <laughs> he doesn't get mentioned maybe as much as he should. But he w- he was really he was the only really the only guy that I. that I'm aware of who was apart from the four guys who was involved with all those those first five albums Mm. yeah um, and and more and before yes and um, it was he's sometimes he's he's too often thought about as just the studio manager and the studio the architect of it, it its conception but he, he actually did an awful lot of engineering, Peter, on a lot of amazing things, you know. Here, here. So, and I think I think Peter felt that. Uh, but yeah, there was a there was a shock that we all felt. I think you know there was a shock, a, you know, a nine eleven type shock. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. And um, yeah, there was a lot of phone calls going to and from, and I can remember that. A um, mm. lot of people talking to each other. Other projects. I've got. A, I did a bit of research on Discogs, and I've, I found another couple. Mm. Um, perhaps we'll talk about the uh, the Ramones album in a minute. But another one I found, Mark, and this could be the only hit you worked on, or only sizable hit, I should say. Capstick comes home. It says you engi- oh. engineered that. Is that correct? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll never forget that first day at Pit. Me and my father worked a seventy-two hour shift. 
and then we walked home 43 miles through snow in his bare feet. Huddled inside his clothes made out of old sacks. Eventually, we trudged over hill and we could see street light twinkling in our village. Yeah. Do you, yeah. Um, do you remember that, Sean? Was it a brass band thing? Yeah, uh, I can was, hardly remember any of it. Well, wasn't it? A, this, it was a hit single, um, but this was a guy called Tony Capstick, and the, the single, I yeah. think, was a kind of was built around or a remake of the Hovis advert, because oh. Vorjak is credited as the co-writer when I when I researched this. So I think it's that thing with a guy riding his bike up the cobbles. You remember that advert? Yeah. <laughs> yes, to New World Symphony, isn't it playing That's in it. the background? Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I can hardly remember. I remember the event, and I remember Tony Capstick being in, and he was a funny guy. He was a he yeah. was a great, great guy. But I can't remember. I suppose this is what your memory does. It hangs on to the really great <laughs> stuff that you like. Sure, sure. It has well, a filter system, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, like a, you know, um, what is it? Send, send to, send to bin. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right. and but but it's uh, as you know that the, the bin you can always retrieve things like I I just have here we are here's uh, this is my phone playing, Capstick comes home. <laughs> That's great, and I love I love the, that it's still got the uh, the vinyl crackles on there. That's fantastic. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's giving me a lump in my throat. That. Uh, very yeah. nice. Good work, and, Mark. Good work. And and so pleasant dreams. Um, I know. I think the tracks for the Ramones album were recorded in New York, but Graham brought is it Joey Ramone, the lead singer, yeah. over to uh, to um, to do the vocals. Were you work? Did you work on that one? Yeah, that was great. Mm. Um, yeah, that was an experience as well. It's 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 funny um, uh, seeing Joey Ramone in Stockport on Hillgate. <laughs> Yeah. She's a sensation, she's a sensation She looks so sweet She's a sensation, she's a sensation Yeah, I remember that well He he, he stayed at Mossroom Hall actually Which is just really, really close to Graham's old house Okay, yes and I used to think it was funny, you know, when he went back to Mottram Hall Hotel, which was which is a little bit stuffy. Yeah. And um, upper crust, you know, and I used to think, I wonder what they make of seeing Joey Ramone walk into his <laughs> every evening. But, um, yeah, he, um, Graham put some guitars on it as well up here. Okay. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, uh, yeah, but it, it was it was all good fun. He's got a um, very healthy appetite, Joey Ramone. You would you wouldn't think so. He used to have to bend bend his head down to get into the control room. Right. <laughs> I don't know if he's is, is he about maybe he must be se- seven foot maybe. Wow. Really he's, tall. Then. Really. He's, um, he's no longer with us, I'm afraid. But he, yeah, he was he was a big guy for sure. I don't know how tall. Hmm. Yeah, from Forest Hills, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. And, Fantastic. and I always thought, I always thought for, for for quite a long time in the sometime in the seventies, I always thought they were brothers. <laughs> yeah, I did. I, I did. did. Yeah, I think we all did, to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> it kind of looked like they might be, I yes. suppose, as well. 
Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no matter what you do, I give my heart to Mark, are you still living in the area, and and do you still bump into to Peter from time to time? Yeah, I saw Peter um, a few months ago. Yeah, and um, we just had a good chat, and he's he's in good he's in good shape. Yes, um, he is, isn't he? Yeah, and uh, he's great. He's always upbeat. It's always nice to see him, um, and I see. Uh, um, I see Zeb White, yeah, who was CCC's road manager. Um, I see Zeb quite a bit. In fact, Zeb got in touch with me when Richard was was um, very poorly mm. before he died, and he, he he just let me know where he which hospice he was in. Which so I went down and saw Richard, which was nice because I hadn't seen him for a while. Yeah, and it it, it, it was nice to see him. Nice guy. Yes. Um, but I don't think there's too many more who who live around Manchester now. Yeah, you have to if you if you, you won't mind, maybe put us in touch with Zeb White. He's somebody we'd like to talk to. He he could give us some great stories, I'm sure. Oh, he's got some oh, color, yeah. he's got some colourful tales, hasn't oh, he? Oh, you, you've met him, haven't uh, you? Yeah, Sean? I met him at uh, Liam's book signing. Uh, yeah, right, right. At Stockport Museum, Mark, uh, in February, actually, of this year. Uh, yeah. It was ju- literally just before things were going into lockdown. Uh, and it yeah. was wonderful. Peter was, was there with, with Zeb and, and many other people. And it was great to meet him. And just hearing him talk about the, the old days on tour and the sort of pranks and tomfoolery that he used <laughs> to get up to, it, yeah. sat, it oh, sounded really yeah. fun. Yeah, the guy has a lot of um, anecdotes yeah. and, and t- stories. And debauchery and de- debunkery and all sorts of, <laughs> of, of all, this, all this sort of stuff. I mean, he's been around the world with them a few times, hasn't he? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and he's a, he's a nice guy as well. He's a good talker, Zeb. He, he, yeah. He knows a lot of people, and he 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 was there throughout really an awful lot of the whole the whole um, the whole story. Yeah. One way or another. And Zeb, um, even when it was when it when things were getting difficult, maybe the eighties, and Zeb ran Strawberry Rentals, which was um, a company they, they based around the Ten CC's PA system and yes, and, uh, touring rig, and that was kept in the basement at Strawberry, um, so they were never far away. Zeb kind of ended up being a custodian a lot of a lot of those tapes, didn't he? Because a lot of the tapes were still in situ uh, in in Strawberry, weren't they? I think. Yeah, and I um, I was really surprised actually that um, I think I mentioned the, the other week in a, when we had a brief chat. There was um, yeah. Yeah. A, a guy, a, I know, a friend of mine who said, "I've got a, a two-inch multi-track." tape here from strawberry studios with your name on it hmm. and um and it was life is for living by james harvest oh, yeah. and i thought what where, where have you got that and he got it from a skip at wow. the side of strawberry when when, <laughs> when it was all over
It's terrible, isn't it? That is terrible. It left me thinking, God, what else was in there? You know, did they just... Because there was a big library upstairs of um, two-inch and quarter-inch uh, copy masters. There was a lot of copy masters. We we used to listen. We 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 listened to anything ten cc on copy masters in the control room at Strawberry. You know, mm-hmm. um, and so I don't know what happened to those. I, I I would have guessed that people like Rick Dixon maybe would have taken the the ten cc's stuff away because they, they they had kind of a at least moral ownership of them, didn't they? And- yes, and and we've um, Peter Wadsworth, who's been. Um, you know, sort of curating and archiving a lot of, of the strawberry stuff. Thankfully, he's got hold of, of some of those old tapes, Mark, and uh, I'm pleased to say that Paul and I, alongside Peter, David Jarvis up in Wigan, and also Liam Newton, the author, um, yeah. we're hoping to get together, um, fingers crossed for December, actually, um, to yeah. have a go at baking and playing some of these old tapes that have been found. That'll be exciting, yeah, won't wow. it? Well, that that would be something, wouldn't it? Mm. Wow. Yeah, th- some some of these things could be lost forever, couldn't they? Yes. Yes. Although we're happy. I mean, from what we know and uh, what we heard on the record producers program on BBC uh, Radio Two, I don't know whether you heard that too, Mark. Eric, I think, owns most of the crucial, important multi tracks himself. Mm. He's got those. Yeah, I, I guess so. You, yeah, you yeah, would yeah. think so. Um, I hope so. Yeah, and he, uh, Eric especially owns them in more than <laughs> more than just ownership, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, he's physically got them in his house. Yeah, and and yeah. thanks and th- thankfully he's already digitised them, hasn't he? So yes. uh, you know, I guess fingers crossed that yeah. means they could, in theory, last forever, which is a relief. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought it was interesting in the book. I, I read that Eric said that he's he's um, as everybody has. Everybody's had to embrace the digital mm. world when it came, and and it, it's all there is now. But uh, I found it interesting that he, in his in his recording at home, he says he limits himself to I think he said sixteen tracks. Does he really? Yeah, I um, it's a really good discipline to have that. Yeah, I thought there was a lot of wisdom in that. Yes, because you can get you can get kind of sucked into the vortex otherwise, and that's oh, that, that, that's yes. my I'm a I'm a a past master at doing four or four or five times too many tracks. Yeah, and it's it, 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 you kill it, don't you? Well, you swamp it, and and it just ends up like bad Phil Spector when I get when I get yeah. you know hold of projects. And uh, I wish I just had that kind of I don't know the confidence in a way and the clarity to just say no, I'm gonna I'm gonna limit myself to eight or sixteen tracks. Maybe that will be my yeah. New Year's resolution, Mark. Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting discipline. And, yeah. and once again there, we're learning from the best if Eric's saying you do it that way, aren't we? Mm-hmm. I haven't done any recording myself since I read that. Because, but, but it did plant the seed in me. I thought, yes, this is where I've trashed far too many of my my pieces of music. Yeah, uh, doing exactly that. <clears throat> it's it's too easy, and mm. I think that's where a lot of people have got to. I don't think there's many people 
really like to hear huge monstrous production anymore. No. Yeah, I've always played like a lot of us, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, have you got have you got any stuff like on Spotify or anything like that we could have a listen to? Yeah, I I, I think there's some stuff on Spotify. Hmm. Okay. I, um, yeah, to to be honest, I don't try and do anything with it anymore. Yeah. yeah. Um I I've, I I I tend to think that things have things have died really. <laughs> um in, in that way, it, it's everybody's desperate to try and shift some music and get somebody to listen to it. And hmm. I think, I think the general public have got a big issue now with attention span. Yes, yes, and it's, yeah. it's very hard to get somebody to invest more than about thirty seconds into listening something that you might have spent six months recording. You know. <laughs> yeah. um, and um, it's not just um, I'm not just a, having a, a bar humbug moment. <laughs> I think we've, we're slightly oversubscribed now. We've mm-hmm. we've got everything, and uh, for myself, I sometimes think have to really think: Have we now done all music? Mm. Ha- has, yeah. has, has all music now been done? And I, I'm I'm kind of thinking, yeah, I think it, I think it has. Wow, yeah, that, that is controversial. We've had, well, we've had conversations about this, Sean, haven't we? Even from a kind of mathematical, stroke theoretical point of view, like the Western Western music and all the chord combinations and all the arrangement ideas and all the all those yeah. things. That's why the seventies was so brilliant because it was all kind of new, but it's kind mm-hmm. of been all explored now. That's what I feel. May possibly. Yeah. I, I, I wonder. I wonder. There's interestingly, Mark, there's a, a track on the new Kevin Godley album that's coming out uh, in a couple of weeks time. Muscle memory. Uh, we were lucky enough to have a chat with, with Kevin about it and yeah. uh, some really interesting and dark things on there. But one of the tracks is called one day. Uh, oh, yeah. And it's about exactly that, where the the AI companies have basically decided that there will be no more new music ever, uh, and that any new material that comes out will just be kind of re-engineered and reimagined versions of songs that have been put together like Frankenstein's monster forever. Um, so yeah. they can that the that your phone will be able to somehow read your mind and create music out of nowhere based on what's floating around in the past um quite depressing really mm. yeah musicians as we know them will cease to exist because there will be no need for them but but i think that's where it's taken us to to have to to, to look at areas like that because i think in the in the main all timbres and all tempos and all all textures yes. and all emotions and all um, all fashions have I think have all been covered. Yes. And if you if you were to produce some new music that was going to set the world on fire, what would it sound like? Yes, what, I know. Yeah, it, I know. It, it, it is another genre. Is another genre actually possible? Yeah, and I think the movie, I think the movie industry have 
got there as well. We've yeah. we've seen bodies chopped up and minced and mashed, and mm. we've seen the moon explode, and we've seen the <laughs> explode, and we've seen every tryst and every emotional up and down and left and right, and and yeah, you yeah, would, maybe it's difficult to to go further with it. Yeah, maybe yeah, new maybe. There is literally nothing new under the sun. One day there will be no new music. One day that you can't wait. Well, this has been hugely enjoyable, Mark. Thank you so much for sharing those really detailed memories um and it's been a, a thrill for, for us both and and from a personal point of view a, a real thrill for me because i love picking apart these records kind of sound by sound you know effect by effect and and it's been a real treat for me personally uh, so we just wanted to say thank you yeah thanks mark absolutely fantastic yeah. thank you guys thank you for, for giving me the opportunity it's nice that it's some of it's still there. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah, remarkable. Cheers, Mark, and take care of yourself. Bye. Thank you. She's a product of rock and roll living. She's a victim of Hollywood hate. She's a sole survivor. She's the midnight special. Gonna lay you to waste. She's gonna lay you to been listening to the consequences podcast produced by paul mcnulty and sean mccreevy thanks for listening